0: And welcome to Mad Village on 98.9 Northwest FM. Every time I hear this music, I'm about to say environmentality. I have to... Maybe we need to change the intro intro track. Uh, Anyway, you're here with me, Jaime, and with Carol. Good morning, Carol. Good morning, Jaime. How are you?
1: I'm well, thank you.
0: Carol, I thought um, I would start by reading um, Primo Primo Levi's definition of an intellectual. So, according to Primo Levi, uh, an intellectual... You know, he says this about intellectuals. I would propose including in this term all cultured people, irrespective of th- their daily profession, whose culture is alive, in as much as they make an effort to renovate, perfect, and update their knowledge, and who show no indifference or annoyance t- towards any field of knowledge, even if evidently they are not able to cultivate cultivate them all. What do you think?
1: Sounds like a pretty good definition, and it sounds like a lot of hard work.
0: That's right. Well, I can tell you that this morning we are talking to someone who I consider an intellectual using that definition, and her name is Dr. Maria Dagen. And we're going to be talking to her in just a minute. But before that, we're going to start with some music as we always do. And this is a track that um, is a good segue into the conversation with Maria, and she can explain why she chose that when we come back. All right, let's listen to this.
1: You can hear us live on 98.9 Northwest FM and streaming online at www.northwestfm.org. Northwestfm.org for more information. Leave your cares and worries behind. Close your eyes, relax, unwind, and listen in to some of the most beautiful music ever composed. I'm Chris Antonio, and I invite you to join me as we present Classical Notebook every Wednesday night from half past ten to midnight here on 98.9. Northwest FM.
0: Indeed, that is Northwest FM, and the show is Mad Village, um, and you're here with myself, Jaime, and with Carol, and also with our guest. Uh, her name is Dr. Maria Duggan, and Maria, perhaps we can just put you on the spot by asking you about this song. Uh,
2: well, thank you, and hello, Carol and Jaime, I'm very honoured to be here. Uh, Asked to speak about this song of myself here this morning. Uh, and it's Song for Ireland, uh, sung by Luke Kelly of the Dubliners. Uh, and I chose it because the fundamental thing to say about myself is that I am Irish and I am and have been a migrant in two countries uh, in the UK and in now in Australia. So I was born in Ireland. Um, and uh, moved or was forced to move for economic reasons with my family to the great metropolis of London when I was a child and spent a long time uh, trying to forget about the fact that I was Irish because that was a difficult experience being Irish in London in those days. And uh, in my early adulthood, I was proud to be able to reclaim that sense of identity for myself and to work out what it meant. Um, And uh, here I am, still feeling rather Irish, and this time in Melbourne.
0: (laughs) So, Maria, going back to those days Mm. for for just a few minutes, Mm. um, your parents, what what did they do when when they moved to, to London?
2: Okay, so both of my parents, Nancy and Jim, and incidentally that song we played at my father's funeral, And uh, it was uh, an opportunity with this great upwelling of grief from all of the people in London whom he had touched and he was quite a remarkable man and perhaps we can talk a bit about him at some point but... Primarily my parents Nancy and Jim were born in Waterford uh, in the late 1920s uh, when Ireland was uh, in recovering or attempting to recover from protracted civil war following the struggle for independence from England and there was vast poverty. I remember there'd also been a famine which had meant that many of our people had left to come to places like Australia and to America and indeed to England and my parents had, and their families had hung on, I think, in Ireland, but living in great poverty as working class people in Waterford. Uh, My father uh, was radicalised politically, became a socialist during that period, uh, a trade unionist and an organiser of a very important political event in Ireland, which is called the Movement of the Unemployed. So actually, you know, reaching beyond trying to organise people in working situations through unions out to the vast masses of people who simply had no employment and... He was, as a consequence, blacklisted by um, the employers uh, of Waterford, from, uh, of Ireland, from north to south and couldn't get work. And also, I think, very much came um, into, under the kind of disapprobation of the Catholic Church. So he had no choice other than to leave and come to London. My mother's family were my, fa- my grandparents had been, my grandfather had been a merchant seaman. Gone all over the world, been to Australia, spoke about it on ships, uh, and actually, I think at that time, as a child, told me stories which made me think when I grow up, I want to be in places like Australia. In <laughs> And they were always Irish Republicans in a different, so differently political. And I think they were, they were, it was a great love match. They adored each other um, until, you know, the day my mother died and my father died very shortly after that. But they were always involved with local community activity, with um, uh They had an overarching uh, mission and a quest around social justice. And I think that is probably what they gave to me and to all of my siblings.
1: Mm. How many siblings do you have, Maria?
2: Well, I had five. Um, I'm the oldest of uh, five children. And my brother uh, had a brother who died some years ago. So I'm now now the oldest of four. four. Yeah yeah
0: now if you want to send a question for maria you can do so by sending us an SMS, double seven double seven nine eight nine and you can also uh send us send us a tweet uh and our handle for twitter is ma m uh, capital letters m a d underscore village and you'll be able to find us there now um so maria um this was a great uh situational background just to to know now you were in london Mm. you had pretty lefty parents and very community-minded um and let's let's go to maybe your late high school days and where were you at that point and where were you leaning in terms of your future education
2: Okay, so um, perhaps I can also say something a word of appreciation for London, because um, I do love London and I think it has been a great shaping influence on me and many others. And what I like about London more than anything else is it doesn't belong to anybody, it's like this great port. You know, with a huge history and a huge present, Um, uh, let's leave Brexit out of this for the moment. (laughs) We'll come back to that a bit later. People can come and go. And so everybody, my image for London is perhaps a little bit like Melbourne and like, you know, other big cities is these places are diverse and very rich and culturally generous because they're like big old brick walls where the mortar's crumbling and you can kind of hack out a bit of the mortar and crawl inside that big bit and find all sorts of other people in there a bit like you in that particular bit and there's lots of spaces for it. So, you know, having grown up in London as a Working class Irish girl and being forced to survive. And in those days in London, there was great discrimination uh, towards um, incomers, uh, black people, African Caribbeans who came to work at the invitation of the British government, the <coughs> Irish. And my parents certainly experienced the phenomenon of seeing on, you know, houses, um, places to rent, no blacks, no Irish, and no dogs. And I remember seeing that as a child. And it was very confronting and difficult experience so as a child what I did was I decided I was going to pass as English so my voice and my accent is very much a kind of survival mechanism I think to keep the kind of bad stuff away I'm sorry about that now my parents sounded Irish till their dying days very proudly so but always put on the brogue when the going got tough but I was a kid I was seven when we came to London and so I grew up in London There was a selective education system there. At 11, you did an exam called the 11 plus. If you were clever, you went to grammar school. If you weren't clever, you went to secondary school. Suddenly at 11, I was in the clever club and I left all of my old school friends behind and ended up at grammar school. And very clearly, you know, at grammar school found a path, which was that, you know, I was really very interested in social justice and history and the sociological perspective on things. So um, in my final years at school, of course, it was also the beginning of the late, well, it was the end of the 60s, the beginning of the 70s. So it was rather fantastic, you know, Rolling Stones concerts in the park and, (laughs) you know, lots of wonderful stuff happening. And remember, Britain wasn't in the Vietnam War, but we were marching for lots of things. And then it was the beginning of feminism. So it was a very heady time. And I went off to London University, studied English, then went to the London School of Economics, where I studied um, applied social science, social theory got a social work degree because I couldn't think what else to do and started working as a social worker on the mean streets of King's Cross in London, which um, tested all of my ideals in a very profound way. So, you know, my parents' uh, community activism and social justice, and sometimes I wonder whether I had any choice at all. It was like this genetic imprint on me to be what I became, <laughs> yeah interestingly my own two children i've got two grown-up children a daughter and a son and they have both um, w- worked in international development in conflict zones around the world and my son is now retraining as a primary school teacher in a very mean place in southwest london so their genes matter <laughs> and family culture yeah
0: so um let's go back to I guess, your early days as a social Mm. worker Mm. and tell us a little bit about that and, Mm. and, you know, how it shaped you. Mm.
2: Well, in those early days, um, there were two schools of thought about how you could be a social worker. You could look at people and say, these individuals have problems and we'll try to work with problems or we will take your children away or we will deal with it by intervening in some coercive way. And the other school of thought was that people in trouble um, were primarily afflicted by poverty and needed uh, to organise solutions to their um difficulties, both their individual difficulties and their community difficulties themselves. So that school of thought, which you know, very much derived from a British tradition around radical social work, where you didn't impose solutions, but you worked with people to what we would now call empower and enable, was very much the school of thought that I, of course, was in. And um, I think at the time we worked as community workers rather than as social workers, and um, I think a lot of, in fact, when I was back in London in January, I noticed that there was a legacy to the kind of uh, stuff that I and colleagues did in terms of, um, for instance, there was a drop-in centre for people with mental health problems in that part of London that I I started with a local psychiatrist. There was a residential uh, centre for single mothers who were, weren't were coping well with, um, with their children. Uh, that's still there in spite of all of the austerity. And at a certain point at that time in London, um, some of you may, may remember, there was, um, uh, there was a, a serial killer at large in the north of England, called, now known as the as the Ripper, the Yorkshire Ripper, who was attacking women who worked, uh, sex workers and women who worked on the streets and then extended his range to attack women who weren't sex workers. As a consequence of that, lots of women came from the north and it was the days of Thatcher. There was great poverty in the north of England. So people, these women came down to work in London in King's Cross. And there was a great hue and cry because the local community didn't want uh, either the women on the streets or the people in cars, the men in cars coming to buy sex on the street. So I got involved uh, in working with uh, the women on the street at that time and actually went off to Sweden to study approaches to prostitution there. And, um, you know, it was a very interesting time. And I think... Looking back, I mean, again, there was this kind of impulse for me that I was always looking for the roots of problems rather than dealing with the symptoms of problems and wanting to go upstream and to find political and strategic solutions to the issues as they confronted people in their daily lives. And uh, I think that experience of working with the prostitute women in King's Cross and then working with the local council and the local police and the local healthcare agencies to find a strategic solution, and indeed with the women themselves, was really quite kind of formational for me. And from that, I went off to um, do further study. Um, I went to a think tank and then went and did a PhD in... um, Various aspects of mental health, which is what I was increasingly becoming interested in public mental health and disorder. So that's a kind of encapsulates um, a very long number of years. I mean, in the middle of that period, of course, I got married and had two children, <laughs> and um, <you> know, <laughs> wouldn't want to kind of trivialize that. But um, yeah. So, yeah. So I was kind of raised on the mean streets of London, worked in the mean streets of London. I think I understand personally what it feels like to live in poverty. I think that there is great talent that is wasted amongst people living in poverty. And my mission is to challenge uh, the forces and factors that oppress people and waste that talent and to try to bring forward suggestions, political and policy suggestions based on sound research that will provide platforms for people to realise their potential. So I don't know whether I'm, you know, I'm getting old now. <laughs> and uh, I don't I don't know that I've been as successful as I would want. And the times seem to be against uh, ideas of social justice and egalitarianism. But in a strange kind of way, the older I get, the angrier I get. So the fire in my belly does not go out. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, the Carol, really-
0: how, how do you feel about that yourself?
1: Well, one of the questions I did want to ask, Maria, was how do you avoid despair in the sort of work that you've been involved with? How do
2: you make sure it is fire and anger Mm. and not despair and despondency? Mm. Well, I think we all experience despair and despondency and there are times certainly the last two years where I've felt at my lowest politically but uh, Jaime has heard this story and I'm going to tell you it now that um, I went to in one of my despairing periods I went off on a writer's course I decided I was going to stop doing this academic work I was going to become an old lady and I was going to write a novel problem is I don't know how to write a novel so I went off to a writer's course it was absolutely fantastic it was a resident course for a week and there were all sorts of interesting people there including a young man and his very young wife who had been obviously very very severely injured he was covered in wounds still he was on crutches he had difficulty walking he was obviously in great pain and in he was french Uh, his wife was actually a young woman from sydney and in one of the discussions where i gave into despair He came and sat beside me um, on the sofa where we were and said, uh, Maria, he said, uh, my story is that I was the webmaster for Charlie Hebdo, the magazine which was infiltrated by terrorists. And he was basically shot point blank many, many times by uh, in this massacre and spent a year in a coma and the injuries and the still open wounds and the damage that he had experienced was, was very apparent. And he said to me, and I was very shocked and amazed that he'd, you know, to hear this story. And he said to me, and I have come to the conclusion, Maria, he said that these times are too terrible for despair. You cannot allow yourself the indulgence of despair. So when I hit despair these days, I think of this young man, his name was Simon Simon. And if you're listening, Simon, over there in Paris, uh, you have been greatly inspirational to me. And actually, you're you're dead right. Because if we give in to despair, and we stop fighting, then the world will never change. And we have got to change this world for all of our kids. So
0: you're listening to... Mad Village on 98.9 Northwest FM it is now 925 and our guest this morning is Maria Dagan and I think it's a perfect time to have a little bit of a break for a music track uh, a music track that we're going to dedicate to Simone okay. so there you go mm-hmm. Well, I think that track doesn't need a, an introduction, but we'll still back announce it. So it was a redemption song from Bob Marley. And that was actually an acoustic version um, performed at the studio with the Wailers. Maria, why did you choose that song?
2: Oh, well, I love it. <laughs> um, I love Bob Marley and the Wailers. But I actually saw uh, Bob Marley and the Wailers um, when I was in my early 20s at the Hammersmith Palais in London and they played Redemption Song and the joint was just jumping. I mean, people were standing on seats and screaming. And for me, I think it's the possibility of redemption. I mean, I think that's really important and I speak as a non-religious person and I use that in a non-religious way. There's something about the notion of um, social redemption. I think non-judgment the idea that anybody can change, that the times can change, which I think is what Bob Marley is saying. And uh, again, the London part of me uh, wants to acknowledge and honour the kind of wonderful African Caribbean communities that I grew up with um, and have worked with and all of the great friends of mine from those communities, because this is such a strong and vibrant cultural strain in London. And, um, you know, I love it.
0: You you know, last week we were very lucky to uh, be able to speak on the phone to um, Maker Mayek and he's a South Sudanese lawyer. I don't think he minded me introducing him like this. (laughs) Um, So Maker was one of the people who uh, started the African gangs campaign when Peter Dutton, you know, decided to sort of make everyone fearful about going out for dinner in Melbourne. Anyway, uh, it was just a, such a pleasure to speak to him, and and it just makes you think of that incredible contribution that you know South Sudanese people are making to to our to our city to our culture.
2: Indeed, and if I can say, I actually heard him because I I heard him on the BBC speaking about this, and I'm wondering if the interview that he made here was picked up. So congratulations to him. He was a very articulate spokesperson for his community
0: yes definitely all right so maria we um by now you have uh, gone to university you have had two kids you have completed your phd and one of the things that i wanted to touch on is your interest in mental health which Mm -hmm. is something that i get i guess has stayed with you for a really long time Mm -hmm. and where did that come from and i guess how did it manifest
2: Yeah, I don't know where it came from. I'm um, maybe because I struggle with my own mental health. Um, I, I think it's, um, I was reading somewhere that somebody said, um, how do you... Uh, how do you define happiness Uh, somebody was talking to Tennessee Williams you know the great playwright and asking him what was his definition of happiness and he thought for a moment and scratched his head and he said "Uh, well insensitivity I guess (laughs) which I think is kind of amazing I think if you grow up with any kind of a conscience or and you know an analytical mind and you can see that things are not good in the world and you see people that you love struggle and you see injustice then you're going to struggle with depression and um um, i think for me there's also something i really do truly believe this that there's um real joy and real fulfillment is doing and acting and being in some sort of community with others so that the privatization of life the increasing individualization of each of us the atomization i think has created a mass epidemics everywhere of a kind of distress So I, like everybody else, am caught by that and I have my dark moments. But um, I I think in the end, I just find people's states of being and states of mind so interesting. I think in the end, I mean, there's something, you know, about such deep interest in people and the way the world works that inevitably you think about consciousness and mind and things like that. So um And also, of course, there's the deep discrimination suffered by people who suffer mental distress of all kinds that um, has always stuck in my gullet, that always felt completely wrong. And I could never understand why it is that we split mind and body in the way that we do so that there's deserving illnesses, which are often physical and get attention. And then there's the undeserving illnesses, which are to do with mind and thinking and emotion and cognition and get so much less attention and of course the, it's a nonsense anyway because people with mental ill health also suffer greatly with physical ill health. We are one entity, mind and body so this is my general approach to it mm.
0: And Maria you have done a fair bit of work mm. um, particularly in the Australian context mm. about mental health. Maybe mm. tell us a little bit about that
2: Well um, since I've been fortunate uh since I've been in Australia, to have um, been uh, given the opportunity to work at an organisation called uh, the Australian Health Policy Collaboration, which is based at Victoria University in Melbourne. Uh, And the mission of the organisation is to look at chronic disease of all kinds and to look at how health services and health policy needs to change to address the fact that we are no longer dying of wounds and Uh, battle inflicted injuries and mostly not dying of infection but of chronic diseases so we live longer but we don't live better because we have chronic disease but our health systems are still structured and funded indeed as if that wasn't the case as if we all go in get cured and come out in fact we don't go in at all and we don't get cured because chronic diseases are mostly not curable but they are often preventable and they can be managed better And mental health, I think, needs to be seen and reconstituted as a chronic disease. So my work has involved looking at the relationships between mental ill health and physical ill health. And the jargon word for that is comorbidities. But there's a, you know, really very important that we understand that if you have, for instance, diabetes, you might also be depressed. And if you have diabetes and depression, and your depression is not addressed, you'll find it harder to manage your medication and the lifestyle changes. You know, taking more exercise, reducing your diet, because depression saps that kind of energy. That's a very simple, you know, example of you know the way in which we just have to begin to see people more holistically. The other area that I'm really interested in is um, gender and its impact on health men and women have different experiences in life and some of that's to do with biology and some of it is to do with experience um, the totality of experience so my particular interest is in women's mental health because I am a woman Um, I've had postnatal depression along with my Impressions. Um, I understand what that feels like, <clears throat> and I've had the experience of sexism and all the rest of it, and the unequal pay. These are the things that mediate women's social position. So I actually brought along a few facts because I'm going to use this opp- um, opportunity of speaking here as um, a little bit of a platform for saying we still need to address uh, gender more broadly in terms of mental health. But for the moment, I'm going to confine myself to what. What I know about, which is women's mental health. So here, here are some facts. Mental disorders are the leading cause of disability and the highest burden of non-fatal illnesses for women in Australia. Now, I bet that surprises people. So 43% of Australian women have experienced mental illness at some time. And Australian women are more likely than men to have experienced symptoms of a mental disorder last year with the highest rates of mental distress being perhaps surprisingly amongst younger women. A fifth of mothers diagnosed with depression, with 56,000 mothers being diagnosed with perinatal depression annually. And that is likely to be an underestimate because there's not universal depression screening um, in pregnancy here. And here's the kicker for me, which is that women are nearly one and a half times as likely to suffer from a coexisting mental and physical illness, though this comorbidity. Somehow women seem to, uh, with mental distress, uh, it just seems to affect physical health more than with men. Is that actually the case? That's what we know. Do men simply under-report physical illness? I don't, I don't know. And these comorbidities, basically, if you are if you have a mental illness and a physical illness, you're more likely to be more severely mentally ill. And that's hardly surprising because if you're miserable and frightened and you've got pain or you're worried about uh, life changing impacts from a physical illness, you're likely to be more anxious and depressed. You think about it. It's not rocket science. Um, and then we have uh, the fact that women aged 35 to 34 are the highest consumers of Medicare subsidised mental health services and not to ignore the appalling state of women in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities who have much poorer physical and mental health than other Australians and I draw attention particularly to the suicide rate of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women which is higher, more than five times higher than their corresponding non-Indigenous counterparts certainly in the youngest age group so I think this is all, you know, alarming stuff because the burden of poor mental health amongst women has all kinds of adverse social consequences for the individuals themselves and for their families. But loss of productivity in the workforce, uh, the impoverishment of women and their families in general and reduced uh, and, and increased rates of welfare receipts. Um, And so I think my argument is that if you continue to view the world as if gender didn't matter, if you have gender blind policy, which ignores the role of gender or the different experiences of men and women as both cause and consequence of mental illness and also a factor in treatment and response, your policy is part of the problem you know you, you you render it invisible and then you've got ineffective policy and you've got services that don't work to really address the problem so i feel quite passionate in that uh, about that and um, i think it needs to be known and discussed i think we need a brave conversation in australia and everywhere else about about these issues mm.
0: how um what's the interrelation between women's mental health and Violence against women, as well.
2: Violence against women is a huge determinant um, of of uh, w- you know women's mental ill health and indeed a range of other social consequences. Um, it's a a factor in in it. Um, I also think somewhere in all of this, we've got to think about. The, the primary causes of domestic violence and start to ask questions about how men are in the world, you know, and uh, clearly alcohol is a may and other forms of substance abuse are a major factor in this. But I mean, if, if it's not, I don't think I'm colluding at all with this problem. If I say that somewhere when a man abuses a woman, it's not a sign of great mental health somewhere we have to acknowledge that men and women in their different experience of a social world and experiencing pressures differently, um, manifest them in different ways. And we already know, for instance, that men um, suffer different kinds of mental illness, uh, uh, fail to report, have different forms of health seeking, help seeking, etc, etc. Now, my expertise lies in women's mental health but I acknowledge that if you have gendered policy and you begin to understand gender determinants of mental and physical health in a slightly different way we might understand and respond better. Mm.
0: Maria I just feel that this particular topic uh, could could be covered I mean you know we could have a whole show dedicated to this and uh, you know now we're, I'm looking at the clock and we actually not close to be running out of quite close to being to running out of time, so mm. I want to park that conversation there and Fine. um because I want to talk a little bit about politics as well i mean <laughs> it, so it's not about it's not about stopping this conversation but it's about putting it in the context of of politics and lots of things that need to be done, not just on this front um and I wanted to ask you a question <clears throat> because I know that you you have got involved in politics as well from the point of view of being part of a government of, you know. um, I wanted to ask you in in your experience since maybe the 60s or the 70s, um, can you give us maybe some examples of some some governments that you think have done things quite
2: well? Mm. Yes. (laughs) Yes, That's a so, relief. <laughs> yes, I can. I, I suppose I, I, I've come to a view, in fact, I've been talking about this over this weekend because people have been lamenting the state of politics here uh, in Australia and, and rightly so. And indeed, as in the UK, we face Brexit and the sheer shambles around it and its appalling consequences. I've got my worries about that too. But so my general view is in politics, you get a bit of what you want and you don't get everything and uh, and I think politics is largely about um, trade-offs it's what you can live with as opposed to what other people can live with and it's taken me a long time to learn that and I'm not saying I'm happy with it because of course what you want is everything and what you get is something but may and I hope this isn't a gesture of despair but I think something's a lot better than nothing uh, particularly for the most vulnerable. And right now, in the UK and here, I think the most vulnerable are getting really almost nothing. And I would like to see that change in the direction of something. So broadly, I'm a social democrat. Um, I think that social democratic conditions um, enable the most people to thrive. Um, I think that will dissatisfy people on the left who'll say it means that some people are still much richer than others um, and that inequality persists. I agree. But I think we're a very, very long way from having a society where there's perfect equality. I yearn for it, but maybe my children's 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 children, maybe we will have evolved. Right now, it's unrealistic. So social democracy is what I want. And by social democracy, what I mean is um, some kind of strong welfare state that will create safety nets for people, that will invest in education and healthcare, that will deal with the bad inequalities around sexism and discrimination on the grounds of race and disablism. These are the things that individuals and communities can't deal with by themselves. Regulation in the public's interest. I think you need a strong state to do that. I don't want everything to be privatised, everything to be individualised to the point of separating each from each. So governments who have done that... Well, my what I know about relates more to the UK than anywhere else. But I would say that in the very early years, and I can hear people going to hate me out there, but I would say that the first Blair government in 1997, after decades of Thatcherism, we, you know, I went into government as a mental health policy advisor with the Blair government. We did great things. Education was invested in transformed educational outcomes in London. The health service was invested in we have a universal healthcare system in the UK. Um, uh, waiting lists shrank. Uh, all of these things, you know, uh, new legislation around uh, inequalities, tackling inequalities in a way that made such a difference. You know, the streets of London all have drop curbs. The tubes... Uh, have uh, the special kind of aids and adaptations for people who can't hear and can't see. These removing barriers to participation in the social environment, huge investment in public health, creating cities for health. These kinds of things that are really important, but not glamorous. All of that lost by Blair's misadventure in Iraq, and I feel very angry about that. But that doesn't make my belief in social democracy falter. Um, I would go on to say that I have great respect for Gordon Brown, who I think should have had longer in government, and actually under his watch, many millions of children were lifted out of poverty in the UK. I would like to see something like that happen in Australia too.
0: Carol, um, can I can I throw that question at you for a second? Come on.
2: Me? Uh, yeah.
0: Good governments in in Australia.
1: Yeah. Hindsight's always fantastic. So there's been quite a bit done looking back at the Hawke government now. And at the time I was part of the Labor left and we all railed against Hawke and Keating as, you know, the great privatisers and deregulators and opening up the economy to the global economy and that was a disaster. Now we look back and think that was a fantastic government. Universal healthcare, investment in education, changes in equal opportunity. I mean, very similar to what you're saying about Blair. Um, look, my, my view is that Labor governments are always better than non-Labor governments, even with all their terrible faults. I agree. Um, I think the Andrews government in Victoria, much maligned and, and slated and being murdered by the Herald Sun as always, has have done and are still doing some amazing things, really making substantial changes the great fear and the great problem with social democracy is the cycle keeps turning and it's turning faster and faster and all those gains are lost quicker and quicker and every successive progressive government that eventually comes back in the cycle has to rebuild again it just it doesn't we don't seem to have a foundation that we can build upon each time it, it all gets destroyed and we have to start building the foundations again that's that's the frustrating
2: mm. part mm. Yeah, I agree very much with that, Carol. And it's interesting because right at the start of this program, Jaime mentioned or gave a definition of the role of the intellectual, and you know, gave me the great honor of applying it to me. And in one of the breaks, I mentioned Gramsci's idea, the great Italian socialist, his idea of the intellectual being a very kind of broad concept. That um, but basically, people thinkers, people who can think beyond um, the taken for granted truth have a great power um, great power to create social change and um, so that we all need to, Stand outside the consensus at the moment to criticise what's going on and to understand and have a vision of what might be possible and Gramsci himself, I think, came to these views, many years in prison, died in prison, oppressed as a thinker and as an activist. But because he was thinking even in the 1920s about why it is that poor people, working class people, not only um, get oppressed into propping up right wing regimes that are against their interests, but they give them their consent. Why is it that voters in Australia vote in right wing governments? Why do poor people vote in right wing governments that then privilege the rich, same in the United States and the same in the UK, voters again and again and again have in, have voted for austerity, uh, whilst the big end of town, you know, gets richer. So this issue about why we consent m- tells me that some people must think that there's nothing else is possible, and the role of the intellectual is to frame visions and provide the arguments and the evidence that another another truth and another reality is possible that's All why right. we can't despair
0: thank you both we're going to have another music break the, for
1: me, the for me is you the game for me is you the game for me is you the game for me is love You can hear us live on 98.9 Northwest FM and streaming online at www.northwestfm.org. Northwestfm.org for more information. If you were asked, would you know your loved one's organ and tissue donation decision? You can register your own organ and tissue donation decision on the Australian Organ Donor Register. And you can have the chat that saves lives and ask your loved ones about their decision. Check out donatelife.gov.au
0: for more information. Always a good idea to donate your organs. However, I hope you don't have to think about that very soon. Um, all right. So we just heard uh, Consequence of Love by Gregor- Gregory Porter. I have to say he's my new obsession. He's just, I think hes he's just amazing. And he's got this enigmatic thing because he always wears a hat. I don't know what the full story of that is, but he doesn't show his full head for some reason. probably bald, (laughs) Jaime. Well, some of us have no trouble showing that. (laughs) All right, so um, we only have literally five minutes left. And, Mary, I just wanted to finish on, you know, thinking about pessimism of the intelligence and optimism of the will, that quote by Gramsci. I wanted to finish on a positive note. And... I, I just thought I would ask you a very st- stereotypical question, which is, you know, maybe tell us about some people who have inspired you, you know, who have shaped your your thinking, your life. And, you know, it, of course, for me, that changes from week to week. But, you know, I'm not saying, oh, yeah, you have to just talk about Gandhi or Mother Teresa <laughs> or whatever. But, I mean, someone, even in a small way, who think it's quite inspiring.
2: Yeah, I think I'm a bit of a maverick too. I, 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 I'm a great non idolizer so I don't have priests or gods or gurus. Mm. And um, even my kids would say, mum, you never idolise us like other, you know. I've just got kids with their warts and all. So I've probably been a bad mother. Who's <laughs> inspired me? Oh, look, I mean, almost everybody I've met, really, at some level, I my general interest. I've got a great hunger for people. But I think in the end, I'd have to start to finish where I started with a gesture of faith and um, love to my parents, Nancy and Jim. And I think it wasn't just that they were my parents, but the fact that as um, uneducated Irish migrants um, in London, They not only raised five children in difficult circumstances, and we all did well, and remained a loving family to the end, but they never lost the faith. They never despaired, and right to the end, they were involved politically, and um, when they died, their funerals were mass affairs, attended by hundreds and hundreds of people of every shade of the rainbow that's available in London to testify to their kind of internationalism and their general humanity and I you know I think um, I think I was greatly privileged to have that and if I um, hope I've lived my life you know in to keep faith with their values and the ways that I was raised and if I had a tenth of that present at my funeral I think that my life would have been a success having said that I have no intention of popping off just yet (laughs) (laughs) Maria I want to know have you started writing that novel yet yeah I started and um and I was going to in fact I've written quite a lot uh, and I think I have an idea about it and then I've got sucked back to write some more policy papers. So I've got a paper being published tomorrow on how we've all got to look after ourselves bit more, which I don't like very much. And then I've got another one on, sorry to say it, folks, um, dementia. And (laughs) in particular, the link between alcohol and dementia. (laughs) So just to ruin everybody's week. um, Yeah, there ain't no safe level, folks. But after that, those are my last two papers. And then I'm going to go and write my novel. And um, it's going to be a bestseller. It's going to make a lot of money. (laughs) Uh Not... (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> Great, Maria. It's been such an enormous pleasure to talk to you, and we want to thank you for taking a bit of your time to to do that. It's a pleasure, thank and you. Carl. Just in the last minute, um, village idiot of the week. I um I found even a, a bit of a, a sound that we're gonna use whenever we play the village idiot. I I want, I want you to listen to this. <laughs> Right, So that's our soundtrack for Village Idea of, uh, Village Idea of the Week.
1: Well, my nominee, um, I don't think there's any competition this week, sadly. My nominee for Village Idea of the Week is uh, Wayne LaPierre, the NRA vice president who made that astounding and uh, tear-inducing quote that uh, the only thing you can do for a bad guy with a gun is get a good guy with a gun. And uh, I don't think I'll ever forget the horror of those words.
0: Well, and the sad thing about it is that uh, Trump seems to be quite intent on this idea of giving some teachers guns. I mean, anyway, I think we're (laughs) we're all (laughs) speechless.
2: (laughs) I think, can I just say, the teachers have hit back, though. The Mm. teachers are saying we can't even get books and now they want to give us guns. Mm-hmm. So I think we can rely on the teachers to knock back that stupid suggestion.
0: All right. Thanks, Maria, for putting bas- back on, on, a, on the hopeful path. Never despair. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Now we're going to go with uh, some local music. Uh, and Carol, tell us who this young person is.
1: Uh, this is Grace Robinson, um, 18 or 19-year-old Melbourne woman who, when she's not recording beautiful music, is um, doing her VCE at a Melbourne public high school. So good on you, Grace. Mm-hmm. This song is called Far Away From Home, I think. So so Far From Home. So Far From Home.
0: All right. So we'll see you all next week. Thank you very much.